Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. It's, uh, it's a real privilege to get to come and hang out with you guys here. Uh, some of you I saw at the morning services, so you're particularly suckers for punishment. Coming back for round two or round three, uh, I think we call that sadomasochist. So fantastic to see you though, really appreciate it. Um, I've really enjoyed my last 24 hours here in Adelaide. Landed yesterday, I've had a sinus infection, so the actual landing was pretty terrible. Felt like my head was gonna explode. I was, uh, the plane's pressurizing and shifting all the way through. So I'm aptly qualified to be able to speak to the topic of suffering today as we come and address this. Uh, I've got a wife, Erin. We just celebrated our eighth anniversary. So she's up at home with our two little boys, Josiah and Zach. They're three and one, respectively. And uh, they don't sleep, so she doesn't sleep. Uh, and she's very much looking forward to me getting back tomorrow so I can help out on the, the home front. But uh, it's a real privilege to get to come and spend at least a little bit of time here with the City Light family, spend some time with Don, hear his heartbeat and what's going on here at the church. I've been phenomenally encouraged. Uh, my background is as a pastor. I spent six or seven years pastoring in a church in various different roles. Uh, and then for the last few years, I've been working with a guy named Ravi Zacharias, who's an Indian-born now, kind of American resident, uh, but really addressing kind of key questions that skeptics and Christians have when it comes to Christianity. If you're not a Christian and you're here today exploring with significant questions and barriers, you're super welcome and I'm excited to have a conversation with you after the service, or you can get to text in um, your own questions for the Q&A and, uh, you know, experience of grilling a Christian. Um, And if you are a Christian and you've got kind of questions or objections, please love to hear a bit of your story and be able to process some of that with you. Uh, Our ministry is really geared towards helping the thinker believe and helping the believer to think. So that's maybe a little bit of an intro. Hello. People are getting questions already, I think. This is exciting. Uh, preempting. Even before I've said anything yet, you're already, this is terrible. Uh, it's very much a symptom of our current time in history, right? Everyone has big questions when it comes to life and certainly big questions when it comes to God and who they are. Um, I want to share a little bit of my story in leading into tonight's talk particularly. Uh, when I was nine years old, I'd grown up with folks who were Christians. Um, they'd taught me, taken me to church, been to Sunday school. But basically, as a nine-year-old, my understanding of what the Christian story was about was there was this guy, a god, a sky daddy, who's out there, he's big, he's powerful, he loves you, and, uh, and he's got this great plan for your life. And so, if you follow God, things will go well for you. Uh, that was my basic understanding of the Christian story, I would say, as, as a nine-year-old. And we were on a family holiday. We'd driven down to Melbourne for relatives over Christmas. We're driving back up to Brisbane and decided to do a little bit of sightseeing in New South Wales. We're driving through the Blue Mountains on an incredibly foggy day. You could barely see 10 or 15 metres ahead of you. And Dad's driving down this single-lane road, um, no obstructions ahead of us, as best as you can see, uh, when all of a sudden, the last minute, a truck pulled out in front of our Tarago van. And we hit the back of the truck at some 60 or 70 70k an hour. Um, The image up here on the screen is sort of the aftermath of what our Tarago van looked like at the wreckers. Uh, The truck had come into the front left side uh, of the van. My mum was sitting in that passenger seat. And at the same time that we collided with the truck and sort of crushed her legs in the wreckage, her head hit that back corner. She's got a scar to prove it, as well as a car fridge hurtling forward on impact to crush her between these two. Uh, I remember the car spinning and coming to a halt. My sister's woken, screaming, me sitting in the back and just having this image of mum slumped over in her chair, her face partially caved in and covered in blood and her body completely unconscious. Uh, I was ripped out of the car by some people who pulled up behind us. They put us in their vehicle so that we didn't have to see anything that happened after that. But I could overhear, even over their car radio, the screams as the emergency services had to cut mum out of the vehicle. They airlifted her across to hospital. They performed an emergency craniotomy, removing roughly about a third of her skull so that she wouldn't die from intracranial pressure. Her brain could swell. Uh, And I remember speaking to, overhearing the surgeon, talking to my dad after the surgery. And he was trying to prepare my dad. He said, given the extent of her brain injuries, it's very unlikely that she's going to make it through the next 24 hours. And if she does, I want to warn you, this is extensive trauma. She's not going to be the same person that you knew beforehand. You need to prepare yourself. And so for my late childhood and early teenage years, this experience of having a mum who was brain damaged and significantly impacted, having to relearn how to do most things again, loss of memory, loss of vision, loss of capacity, really learning motor skills from the ground up. I went from having a mum to largely being a parent caring for my mum. And it was an experience that for me shattered my belief in a loving God into a million pieces. 
because completely unbeknownst, just by life experience, I'd happened upon one of the most ancient and enduring arguments against the Christian God. What has been known throughout history is the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And it was first penned by a Greek philosopher named Epicurus some three or four centuries before Jesus. And it's been rehashed by various philosophers. We only have it because of a Christian thinker like Tantius, the tutor for Emperor Constantine back in the fourth century. But David Hume, the Scottish skeptic and philosopher, really penned it in probably its most popular form as you'll find it on internet memes these days. And it goes something like this. Is God willing to prevent evil and suffering but not able? Then he may be all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. Is God able to prevent suffering and evil but not willing? Well, then he may be all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. Is God both able and willing? Well, then why is there evil and suffering at all? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why on earth do you call him God? Now, if you're in the midst of your own pain, or you've seen the pain that's in the world today, the rape, the injustice, the murder, the greed, it happens on a global scale, and it happens in here to profound degrees. When you see that and then you come across an argument like that, it can sound watertight. It's what they call the logical problem of evil and the way it's penned. And I remember when I first came across this, I realized it was really confirming where I arrived in my late childhood and teenage years, that in the absence of belief in God, my experience of suffering, I really ran towards what seems to be the most obvious alternative here for a young Aussie fellow, some kind of agnosticism or apatheism or atheism. You just don't care about the God side of things, and you live your life without reference to God. And what I began to realize as I got older, though, is this sort of neutral ground that I thought I was on, not having to have a religious belief, it, it wasn't real. That Christianity, the Bible's big story, it, for a couple of thousand years, has furnished answers to life's deepest questions for much of Western civilization. Questions of origins. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Questions of meaning. What are we to do here on planet Earth? Of morality. How should we live? Of identity. Who are we? What does it mean to be human? And questions of ultimate destiny. What happens to us beyond death? These are questions, these big life shapers that have predominantly been answered by some kind of Christian story. And in the vacuum that's created by running away from God, what I didn't realize is you automatically answer those questions with some other way of making sense of life, some other story. And when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering, most commonly it's penned as sort of being a problem with the coherence of the Christian story, that you can't believe in an all-powerful, all-loving God and the existence of evil and suffering. But the problem of evil and suffering is actually a problem that everyone has to face, irrespective of your belief system. And in my new secular worldview or foundations that I kind of adopted just by virtue of having nothing else, what I didn't realize is that secularism or atheism has two big problems in answering this question itself. Namely, how do I account for the evilness of evil? And how do I account for that feeling that suffering seems wrong for humans to experience? Because on a secular account or making sense of it without reference to God, evil is just a human convention. It's not something that's a real law as part of the universe. It's just something that we have formed through time, space, culture, evolution. And if that's the case, then it varies from person to person, culture to culture, place to place, in the same way that there's a particular Australian view of morality, an ISIS view of morality, a North American view of morality. There are various moralities at play, and neither of them is really right or wrong, and no action is really evil. It's just perhaps non-preferential to you or against your particular frame of reference and experience. But is that really how we think about some of the moral actions that happen across the world? It can't account for the evilness of evil. Nor can it account for this sense of the wrongness of our suffering. You see, this idea when you look at the pain and suffering, when you look at a broken person on a hospital bed, you look there and say, it's like something has gone wrong, that this is not the way that things ought to be. But that deep-seated intuition that we face when we experience suffering is not something that secularism has a response to, because on the secular story, nature is red in tooth and claw. Our genealogy of humanity is written in the blood of countless generations. This is the way things have always been. And so I began to realize that maybe where I stood actually had some problems as well. And it was at this point that I had a friend at work who was a Christian. I was 17 at the time, working in a trade, and he said, have you maybe taken the claims of Jesus seriously for yourself to see how Christianity answers some of these questions now that you're an adult? 
I took up his challenge. I read the Bible in a period of two months. I found it immensely confusing. I don't know what the hell he was thinking, encouraging me to read the Bible as an answer to my question. But I want to share with you, as I moved into becoming a Christian, probably six or 12 months later, how I've come to understand the Christian story speaking to this problem of evil and suffering, because it does. The Bible is not shy on suffering and evil. In fact, it's a mega theme of the Bible. And various different witnesses and people in the Bible speak to this topic and issue. And I want to share with you just three tonight on Genesis, Job, and Jesus. But I want to tell you before I do that you're going to be profoundly disappointed at the end of this talk. I expect that there should be a whole corollary set of questions that you will ask because I won't be able to address everything that fits under the rubric of this kind of conversation. It's merely too deep. The wells that have been dug both by the scriptures as well as Christian thinkers over time, there's just way too much that I'd be able to exhaust in just a short period of time. But I'd love to be able to give you a few things that I've found to be profoundly helpful when it comes to this question of my objection that I could never believe in a God who lets me suffer. So let me begin with the story in Genesis, our first witness. The Bible's big story actually begins with an account of creation. If you're new to the Bible's story, the first few pages talk about the creation of this cosmos. And it's a story that begins with God, in the beginning, God. And the nature of this God is revealed to us over time throughout the biblical story, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal triunity, community, relationship, which has always existed. And that at some point, this one being, a community of love, decides to create a cosmos that at various points, as he's ordering and shaping it, he describes it as good, that God created us for good. And on one particular part of this creative process, he brings about human beings, men and women, and he imprints his image upon them uniquely about all of the created order. And he says of these humans that they are very good, made equal in dignity and value and purpose, made in God's image. And it talks about human beings as primarily being made for a relationship. The Bible's big story is summarized as a responsibility for two things, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity is profoundly relationship-centered, relationship with God and with our fellow human beings, and then caring and stewarding for this planet. But if God's going to create human beings who are capable of having a meaningful relationship, of loving him and loving each other, then he has to create beings who have a certain degree of moral freedom. Now imagine a situation where I was a high-tech programmer, robotics engineer, mechatronics guy, and I created this fantastic robot that looks in every way like a human woman. But everything about her is pre-programmed by my code that like a Stepford wife, she would do anything that I asked without question and would satisfy my every desire. Imagine I walked her into this church, walked up the front, stood her here, and then I asked Don to come up and to perform our wedding. Now, when it got to the point of her declaring her undying love for me and of her saying the words, I do, in response to his question, the wedding vows, would many of you here be full of warm and fuzzy feelings as though you're seeing Shakespearean romance unfold before your eyes? I don't think so. Why? Because we're pre-programmed. We recognize in this, from our cultural experience, our everyday experience, that if love is to be meaningful, that it can't be pre-programmed, it can't be puppeteer strings, it can't be automata or robotic, it has to be the response of some kind of free agent. It has to be freely given. Now, this being the case, when God created human beings in his image, a sovereign God creating humans to reflect something of that sovereignty, he has ultimate freedom, but he granted human beings sort of a limited freedom within their nature and capacities. But this is a freedom that made love possible. The very thing that made evil possible was the free gift of love. And in the same way that God created the natural world around us, the sort of stage upon which the human story can be played, a world that is governed by natural laws that control the movements of matter and energy, so too God being good created a moral fabric in this universe. Moral laws, a grain which you can either go with or go against, and were you to go against it, like any woodworker would know, working against the grain, you tend to get splinters. Imagine if I was to climb to the top of this building, by way of analogy, and I declared to you that I do not believe in the law of gravity. Isaac Newton was wrong. 
Scientists are wrong. The law of gravity does not exist. And let's say I got really passionate about it. I put on red underwear outside my pants. I put on a cape. I tattooed a big S on my chest. If I step off the side of the building, am I going to break the law of gravity? Sort of wondering, aren't you? It happens in every group. We're way too influenced by Marvel and DC these days. Okay? Our everyday experience tells us that irrespective of what I believe about the law of gravity, I'm not going to break it. I'm going to prove the law of gravity and myself be broken in the process. I'll need a one-way ticket to the nearest emergency hospital with all kinds of internal and external injuries. It's going to be bad news. Now, if God's natural laws function in the same way as he upholds the universe, so too do his moral laws. God, as a loving heavenly father, shaped the moral boundaries for our existence in a way that would reflect him and lead to our flourishing. When we go with them, they lead to our flourishing, but when we go against them, they break us. They give us splinters. And this is what's described in Genesis chapter 3, where rather than trust God as a heavenly father to shape our moral boundaries, instead, human beings sought to take that defining power for themselves, to set their own agenda on what is good and what is evil. They sought to break God's moral law, but in the process, they only proved the wisdom of God's moral law and themselves became broken in the process. And that this particular act of rebellion, it didn't just affect our relationship with God or with each other, but it actually affected the world over which we were given to govern. That the cosmos itself came under a curse. It was shattered by this one act. And as a result, it's what theologians describe as the fall. This moment where human beings fell from our high calling as God's image bearers, bearing the image of the glory of God, now crashing into the moral reality whereby we became broken. And the Bible describes this as the entrance of sin and evil and suffering into the world. The very thing that makes sense of this deep-seated intuition that this is not the way that things ought to be or should be. Why? Because it's not the way that they were created to be. And it's not the way that they're destined to be. It's actually the Christian story that not only provides an answer as to why a good and loving God, yet all-powerful, would allow suffering and evil to exist because he values love and wants relationship to be possible. This free will defense also speaks so much about this deep intuition that we have. And this penned by Elvin Plantinger, a Christian philosopher who's still alive today, but back in the late 70s, is what put the nail in the coffin, philosophically speaking, in the logical problem of evil. No philosophers make that argument anymore because it's answered right here in the witness of Genesis that God granted humans a limited capacity of free will and that it was our abuse of that great gift rather than choosing to love God that ended with suffering and evil coming into God's world. Now that answers some of the cognitive kind of side of the problem of evil and suffering, but it does nothing to make us move towards being able to trust that God is good in the midst of our suffering. And so the second witness that I want to speak to is actually from the book of Job in the Old Testament. Uh, when I read the book of Job, I found it incredibly confronting and confusing as a young guy. And the story opens with a little bit of an, a window into a heavenly conversation that Job himself wasn't privy to. But in terms of the actual beginning points of the human experience, Job's a guy who lived in, this is one of the most ancient stories we have, uh, sort of pre-Abrahamic era. And Job was a relatively great guy, according to human standards. He was a guy who loved God, wanted to serve God. He was rather wealthy. He looked after the people that worked for him. He had 10 kids. And in every way, he was trying to honor God with his life. Now, if you follow the idea in Genesis that there is a moral grain to the universe, if you do this, then this will result, it can help you lead to the idea that the universe operates somewhat according to a karmic principle. Do good, get good, do bad, get bad. It's what we call the retribution principle, and it was heavily popular in the ancient world, and particularly in ancient religion. Now, the book of Job is written to address this particular principle and to turn it on its head, realizing that the story is actually far more complex than that, that because the world now is fallen, it's broken, it's cursed, because God is bigger than we think, there's more at play than just do good, get good, do bad, get bad. So Job's good, he's doing everything he can to honor God, and within about a 24-hour period of time, everything that is good about Job's life is ripped from him. His 10 kids are killed when their house collapses on top of them, literally they're entombed in the rubble of their house. All of his wealth is stolen away, either by natural disasters or by raiding enemies. He's come and told by a series of servants that everything he owns is gone. His own health is taken from him as he's struck down with a, 
unknown skin disease. He finds himself in the dust of this old entombed house, now scraping his sores with pottery shards. He's literally sitting in the dust of his former good life. And naturally, in this sort of an experience, you would start to ask questions. Even Job's own wife tells him that he should give up on his worship of God and just curse God and die. <laughs> Not exactly the kind of comforting spouse that you would hope to have in that moment. Now, what the story goes on to say is that as Job is sitting in the pain and the suffering and the questions, he has a series of friends that come down and they do actually the best thing they do in the entire story. For the first seven days, it says they just sit with him in the dirt and no one said anything. Uh, if you have friends or family that are going through suffering, man, this principle of presence is maybe the best thing you can take from this story. <laughs> that the best thing you can do is just be there for the people that are hurting, not necessarily with answers, but just with your presence, your expression of love in that moment. But then they do, as so many of us tend to do, open our mouths and they put their foot in it in a huge way because they buy into this principle of recompense. They buy into this karmic principle that God governs the universe, that you get what you deserve, and therefore, since Job is getting bad, it means he must have been bad. And so they start accusing him. What have you done? What did you do to tick God off in such a way that this is what you get? And Job begins to defend himself. No, I, I, I know God is good. I, I know you get what you deserve, but I don't think I've done anything wrong. He does this big self-inventory in eventually comes to the point of being convinced of his own innocence, where he said, well, I'm innocent, and I know you get what you deserve, which means maybe God isn't the kind of good God that I thought he was. If this is the principle that governs the universe, then maybe the character of God is seriously in question. So he begins to think, maybe I can't believe in a God who lets me suffer. Now, in chapter 38 of the book, God turns up to respond to Job's questions. And you'd think that this would be one of those warm, fuzzy moments where a loving Heavenly Father would come down and embrace his earthly kid and would try and make him feel better and would answer his questions. But this is how God responds. This is what perplexed me as someone who wasn't a Christian. Then the Lord God spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Those are the first two of a series of 64 questions where God dresses down Job like a teacher to a first-year student in a way that just seems profoundly harsh. Like, what the hell is up with this? It's so mean. To a guy who's just lost everything, that is the answer of this supposedly all-loving God. What on earth is going on here? And the only thing more strange to God's response is Job's response to God's response, where he goes on in chapter 42 to repent in dust and ashes, for he said, I spoke about things of which I did not know, but now that my eyes have seen you, I repent. His encounter with this big God who apparently knows a ton of stuff that Job doesn't know, it was enough to soften him and bring him back to a place of being able to believe in God. And I thought, this is a bizarre story. What on earth is happening here? until I realized what this story is designed to do. One of the key kind of Christian responses to the idea of the suffering that we experience and God's answer to it is an idea called skeptical theism. And it's an approach which basically raises the question of saying, given what we are, human beings, given that we're limited in time and space, that our minds are finite and fallen, should we really expect to be able to have all of the answers to the questions that we would ask of God. Now, maybe by way of analogy, this might help. Um, this is a picture of my son, Josiah. He's my eldest son. He's now three and a half, but this is about 18 months old. And they took this photo uh, exactly at the moment where he was told that he would grow up to look like me. <laughs> but when Josiah was 18 months old, right around the, the time this photo was taken, I had to take him into the doctor for the next round of immunizations on the schedule. And uh, they told us that they just updated the schedule. At this point, he's going to need two different needles. Um, and doctors are pretty smart. They know that you don't get a second stab at a, you know, a toddler, pardon the pun. Uh, and so they inject the needle simultaneously, was what she told me. And so there's a nurse on one side with a needle, there's a doctor on the other side with a needle. And they have me sit Josiah on my lap and hold his arms so that he can't move uh, and get him to look up at me so that he's not looking at the big needles. Uh, basically, their plan is to, for me to lull him into a false sense of security, right? Um, they're very devious, some of these pediatrics doctors. Um, 
And after one, two, three, he's not expecting it, they just jab him. And as I'm holding him, I just feel his body wince with pain. And exactly if you've ever been hit in the nose, whether intentionally or otherwise, uh, you know, your eyes just instantly water. Same, same thing happened. His eyes fill with tears. And there is this expression that comes upon his face, which anyone would be able to recognize. You know, you don't have to be some kind of psychologist who studied tribes in Africa and microaggression expressions for him. Everyone knows it's, it's, it's betrayal, right? <laughs> Because in his mind, as we're sitting there, Daddy is all-powerful. I'm really strong, right? I can lift him over my head, I can throw him into the air, I can build forts. I'm a lot bigger than the female doctor here and the female nurse that's there. If he wanted, Daddy could easily stop them from hurting me. And I know that Daddy loves me. I mean, in his words, Daddy loves me so much. I care for him, I feed him, I hug him, I read to him, I play with him. He knows that I love him. He cannot fathom in this moment why I'm allowing him to suffer. Now, what do I know that he doesn't? See, as a 30-year-old who has a reasonable degree of education, I, I at least have a working knowledge of immunology. I understand the concept, right? Viral ba infections, bacterial infections, the necessity of having antibodies so that they fight off greater problems down the road. Like, I have a working knowledge. I know why I'm allowing him to forego, experience this momentary pain to be able to hopefully save him from a much worse thing down the line. As an 18-month-old boy, how much of that can I explain to him when his entire vocabulary is a series of words that mostly revolve around getting more ice cream? There's just no way, knowing what I know, that I can convey it to him in a way that he'll understand yet. Now, if this is true of me as a 30-year-old dad to my 18-month-old boy, how much more is this true of an infinite and all-wise creator who doesn't just know the movement of every atom in the universe right now, but can see the cause and effect nature, the butterfly effect of every decision and action and event as it ripples on through the corridors of time right on into eternity. I am just not in a position to know whether God has good reasons to allow what he does. There is a bigness to God that Job encountered when God asked all of these questions. There's a bigness to Daddy that Josiah encountered in that particular doctor's surgery. And it's part of the response to suffering and evil in the biblical story. It's just a challenge whether we should expect to have all of the answers. We have some in Genesis and in other witnesses, but are we always going to know exactly why God lets things happen? Now, retrospect is a great gift. Um, some of you here uh, in your 20s and early 30s, like me, um, we get tastes of suffering so far, but every decade adds an entire magnitude of your exposure to suffering. You move from graduation and new jobs and boyfriends and girlfriends and marriage and babies and travel experiences then to miscarriages and divorces and infertility uh, and to parents dying and sickness and unexpected loss of jobs and all kinds of things which just compound with time. Life is a course on suffering that gets harder and harder the more you near the end. And if this is the case, the further you go on, there's this gift that we're given of retrospect. You can look back in time and see that there are small experiences that you have. At the time, it felt so bad, and, but yet further down the track, you realize how that's actually turned out in some ways to shape you, to significantly become the kind of person you are in positive ways. And if it's true in God's economy that he sees things that we could never see, at least not see this side, of eternity. Retrospect is just the smallest window we get into how some of the worst things that happen to us and that perhaps happen to others can have effects which are unexpected in how they ultimately result. And so I think this is a meaningful witness from Job just to challenge us. And I know we want questions. It's the most natural thing to ask that why, to want to know. But maybe right now we're not going to get access to all of those answers. There is a bigness to God that we have to wrestle with. But that witness, again, is just not enough. <laughs> there is a bigness to Kim Jong-un. There is a bigness to Donald Trump, but it doesn't mean that I trust them. It doesn't mean they're people that I would follow or give my life to. So what is it about God that makes him eminently trustworthy, that allows me to believe in him in the midst of my suffering? And for this, I want to turn to the witness of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you've got a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 11. It's the fourth of the Gospels, um, and it's a story about a man named Lazarus. 
Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're here just exploring things, um, Jesus of Nazareth is the centerpiece of the Bible. He's the centerpiece of the Christian story. He's the best revelation. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. You see glimpses of God in many of the stories about the Bible, aspects of his attributes, what he's like, bits of his character. But in Jesus of Nazareth, you see the fullest representation of what God is like. He is the God-man, God in flesh, the exact image of those radiants. And so when it comes to Jesus, what Jesus doesn't do is give you an answer as to why God lets you suffer. But he does give you a window into how God uses our suffering and how God responds to our suffering that I think melted me, and I hope might have a similar impact in perhaps melting your skepticism or why you may keep God at arm's length. Now, in this story in John chapter 11, Jesus has a close band of friends named Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They've had a number of interactions already in some of the other gospel stories, but um, Jesus is up in northern part of, uh, of ancient Judea, at this point up in Galilee. He hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. If you're familiar with some of the other gospel stories before this, Jesus has supernatural power like God would to be able to do things that even doctors in all of their modern understanding of nature cannot do, to do the miraculous, to invest new creative power into into the universe in a way that heals people supernaturally. And so Jesus could have gone to Lazarus and just heal him with a miracle. He chooses not to. Instead, Jesus waits until he specifically knows that Lazarus has euphemistically fallen asleep or, as his disciples don't understand that, he goes on to say, he's dead, he's, he's now dead. And after a couple of days, Jesus walks with his disciples down to Judea, to Bethany, to the town where they live. And as Jesus stands on the outskirts of the town, one after the other, Mary and Martha come to visit him. Martha first with a series of questions, then Mary with a whole wash of tears. And it's Jesus' responses and reactions to this situation that speak so much or offer a window into how God feels about our suffering. The first thing I want to point out in here is then the second sister, Mary, comes out to meet Jesus. She just cries in front of him. She's overwhelmed with the grief of the loss of her brother. And she's followed by a crowd of other women, professional mourners, who thought that she was running to the tomb, but really she was running to Jesus. And and as they're all weeping in grief because of the loss of Lazarus, I think there's natural questions that come up here. How does God feel about your suffering and how does God feel about your pain? Is he deistic and indifferent to it? Just a distant God, uncaring about what you're experiencing? Or is he really, as the Bible describes, the heavenly father? And the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, is in there. Two words. Jesus wept. That a Jewish man, in a world where this is uncommon, breaks down into heavy sobs and he weeps, joining Mary in her grief. Now, Jesus is fully cognizant of the fact that he's about to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, perform a ridiculously big miracle in overthrowing death itself, and yet... That doesn't stop him right here in the actual experience of the pain from entering into that and to breaking down one of two places in the Gospels where we see Jesus weep. And what I think this is a window into is if God is a heavenly father to us as his earthly kids and we are made in his image, then whatever compassion or empathy, pain or grief that you feel, you're not more compassionate than God in whose image you're made. So that whatever tears we may shed for the pain and suffering of this world, they're tears that we borrow from his divine eye. Whatever you're suffering right now, God is deeply moved. He weeps over it. He feels for what you're experiencing. He's not indifferent to your pain. The second thing you see Jesus doing in this story is he becomes agitated at death. Both in John 11, uh, 33 and then John eleven thirty-eight, 38, twice it says that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. Now, the language behind this, the gospel here was originally written in Greek. It's a word that's difficult to know exactly how to translate because it can either mean agitated in the sense of pissed off or really, really enraged, or it can mean deeply distressed by a certain kind of reality. And as Jesus is confronted with the death of his friend, at this point, he becomes indignant, distressed, angered, troubled. It's an incredibly strong response in its language, something that's much more softened in our English translations. And what this is, is the window into how Jesus deals with the suffering of those with whom he encounters. 
On secularism, suffering is just part of the story. It's the natural way of things. In various worldviews, it's just the circle of life. In the Christian story, suffering, evil, sickness, and death are enemies of humanity, and they're not natural, they're unnatural. This is not the way that things are intended to be. And Jesus' reaction to death itself is to see it as an enemy to be overthrown. And so both here where Mary's weeping over death and when he gets to the tomb, it repeats the same line. Jesus is angered, troubled, agitated at death. And he goes to do battle. And he calls out the stone be removed and Lazarus be raised from the dead for him to come out and to remove the grave clothes. See, in the pattern of ministry that Jesus sets all throughout the Gospels, he comes to bind up the brokenhearted, to declare at liberty those who are oppressed, to declare good news for the poor, to heal those who are sick, to remove the diseases for those who are unclean, to restore those on the margins of society. He treats suffering, injustice, evil, sickness as enemies to be overcome, and he opposes them in that way, as do is the legacy of anyone who follows properly after the name of Jesus. It's why so much of the great medical history over the last few hundred years is predominantly shaped by the Judeo-Christian worldview, by those motivated by this mission and ministry of Jesus, particularly as it's spread out throughout the undeveloped world or the developing world. And after this encounter, there's a fascinating conversation that takes place earlier in the story, sorry, between Mary, our mother, and Jesus. See, Martha comes to Jesus and says, why didn't you come earlier? Why didn't you come so that you could heal him? But even now, I know that God will grant whatever you ask. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again on the last day at the general resurrection. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, shall live. And he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus makes one of the most profound theological statements about his own identity. But he patterns onto one incredible reality for the Christian story, that suffering, sickness, and death are not the final word. That there is life after death. And there is life after life after death. That for a time we'll be separated from this world and from these physical bodies, and then one day we'll be resurrected from the dead with new immortal bodies to inhabit God's future world. See, Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible begin with a picture of a paradise, a garden, where humans are given the responsibility to care for, steward the planet, to build culture, to build cities, to this creation mandate. The last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 22, describe God bringing down this completed human project, a garden city, a city with a river that flows through it and trees that fill it. And here it's described as a place where the curse of Genesis 3 is now undone, where everything that is sad becomes untrue, where the curse is washed away. And in fact, it describes one of the most beautiful verses in Revelation 21.4, that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain or suffering anymore, for the old order of things will pass away. Behold, I come to make all things new. See, in the Christian story, the existence of eternity, of the opportunity for eternal life for whosoever believes in Jesus Christ, this is what makes our experience of suffering here but an immunization in comparison. It's but a needle prick in terms of comparison. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 11, he goes on to talk about this litany of experiences he's had as someone who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been opposed in every way you can imagine. He's been whipped by the Jews, receiving 40 lashes minus one on multiple occasions. He's been thrown in prison on multiple occasions. He's been shipwrecked on multiple occasions, floated day and night at sea. He's been hungry and homeless and pushed out of the communities that he once identified with. He's even been stoned a bunch of times, which is that old school practice of pelting a person with rocks until they die, okay? For those of you who are uni students, which are unfamiliar with that version of stone. Um, <laughs> he starts to speak about his experience of suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17, where he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says, given the future hope of the Christian story, 
that by trusting in Christ for the salvation of my soul, for the forgiveness of my sin and the newness of life, that what's on offer is eternity in the presence of God, eternal felicity, eternal joy, free of suffering, free of sickness, free of death and mourning, crying, loneliness, alienation, anxiety, depression, free of all of these things. And he compares it with the suffering now and says, it's, it's as nothing. Eternity far outweighs it all. This is a reality of the resurrection of Jesus, that it's not just pie in the sky when we die, but this is our eternal destiny, that one day we too will rise like Jesus. But Jesus goes on too to speak about how God uses our experience of suffering to serve a momentary purpose in his plan. God in his sovereignty, in his providence, he may not be the reason why we suffer, the karmic principle, because we're part of a broken world. We just suffer by virtue of the way that things are. But yet God chooses not to intervene. He could, but he chooses not to stop the free will of others and not to stop the, the course of a broken nature in our own life. Why? Because he's big enough to be able to co-opt suffering and evil, to serve some kind of purpose in his plan. He's sovereign enough to do that. This is what Jesus speaks about. His disciples say, well, why don't we go now? Why did we let Lazarus die? And Jesus said, I'm doing this so that the glory of God may be revealed in him. I'm doing this so that you may come to believe in me through this. Now, when it comes to suffering in a person's life, it can have a whole host of effects. As a pastor, I've been on the bedsides of the sick and the dying. You're often first at tragedy sites after things go terribly wrong. You get a front row seat to the effects of evil and to people's experience of suffering. And my recollections and reflections on that period of time is suffering tends to make us ask questions that you just don't ask when everything is going well. C.S. Lewis describes suffering as a megaphone through which God rouses a deaf world to its need for a rescue, that suffering and evil are like the symptoms of the deeper sin sickness that send us for a diagnosis that allow us to receive a cure, that if we didn't see those symptoms in the first place, we'd never realize that we had a spiritual condition of sin that was terminal. And one day we'd just be lost without ever having any warning. Suffering is one of these symptoms of a broken world, of our separation from God, that God uses to wake us up for our need for rescue and reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ. Other philosophers speak about this as being soul-making or God using our suffering to shape our character. And is it not our experience that the deepest parts of who we are, our discipline, our courage, is forged not in those moments where we're watching Netflix or playing board games or drinking good wine here in Adelaide or hanging out with our friends, those mountaintop moment experiences of life, but who we really are is both revealed and forged through life's hardest experiences. You don't get strong by sitting on a couch. You go through the pain of the gym. And every story, every character, every movie we love, the person like Frodo doesn't start out awesome they start out reasonably small, but they grow to become admirable, courageous, a character that you want to be like precisely through being forged that experience. And it's why the New Testament speaks of suffering, of trial, of persecution as being a forge, a fire, which tests and goes on to shape us. Now, I think these things that Jesus speaks about here in this passage are profound in how Christianity actually shapes how we approach suffering. It never promises that you're delivered from suffering. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said, if you follow him, you will have trouble, you will have suffering, you will even face persecutions. Christianity is not a life that is, tells you how to escape suffering. It tells you how to suffer well so that God may be glorified and revealed in you, that you may be formed and that others may be served. And even if I had all of these resources from the Christian story to help me suffer well or help me lean into suffering in a way that trusts God's promises, I, I still don't think it would be enough for me to believe in the goodness of God. I could never believe in a God who lets me suffer were he not also a God who came and suffered for me. See, the unique story of Christianity is that God entered our world not just to experience the good parts of human life, but actually to suffer the most profoundly excruciating death on my behalf and on yours. See, the passion of the Christ, the story of his suffering, of his trial and his beatings and his lashings and his crucifixion and his death, it's a story that is an anchor historically for us that although you may not know why God lets you suffer in any particular instance, you do know why he, what it can't mean. Your suffering cannot mean that God doesn't love you. 
because on the hill of Calvary, he proved that 2,000 years ago when he laid down his life of his own accord. He held himself to that Roman cross. He paid the penalty for my evil. He absorbed the wrath and judgment of God. And he did all of that so that I could be forgiven of my own evil and the hurt that I've done to others and to be able to be changed from the inside out, made ready for God's future world. That's what Jesus does. He suffers for us in a profound way. And when you're suffering, you don't just need a philosophy or a bunch of good ideas. You need someone that you know you can trust, that they've been through what you've been through and that they can carry you out the other side. And in Jesus, this is precisely what we have in a wounded healer, a suffering savior, a savior who has scars. And Edward Shillito, a Christian poet, he wrote Jesus of the Scars. And in his final stanza, he writes that the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds speak. And no other God has wounds but thou and thou alone. If you're suffering and you run to Jesus, you're running to a God who has scars. In the final pages of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears amongst his disciples and end of John's gospel. He shows them, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. He shows them the scars, even in his resurrection body. And even once lifted up into heaven, once he stands in the presence of his heavenly Father as well, of God the Father. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, for all eternity now, is described by John the Apostle in chapter 4 as a lamb as though it had been slain. For all eternity, as you stand in the presence of Jesus, you will see his scars, the mark of his suffering, the mark of his love for you. And so if you're here today and you're wondering, can I trust a God who lets me suffer? I can't give you all the answers. I can't tell you why he let that heinous, horrible thing happen to you, why he didn't intervene or where he was in that moment. But I can tell you where he is, generally speaking, in the midst of our suffering. He's hanging on a cross. He's right there in the suffering with you. He's weeping over it. But he's wanting love to prevail. And he's inviting you to lean into him, to trust him in the midst of your suffering, so that he, being powerful enough for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he can work, weave all things together for good. That he can take those things done against you, like his own crucifixion, and turn it around in some way to be a way in which you can bring help and hope and healing to the kind of people that are in your life as well. And it's been the, the profound experience of many people that I've spoken to, having gone through horrible experiences of suffering, that where they allowed God to speak to them and where they were open in their suffering and they wrestled with him in the midst of it, that some point further down the track, God actually used their scars to minister to other people going through that hurt as well. And so if you're here today and you're not sure what to do with God in the midst of your suffering. Running away from him doesn't help. There's no more answers to the problem of evil and suffering. And certainly there's no hope or resources to deal with it. But if you run to him, it can profoundly change your experiences of suffering. It can teach you to suffer well. There is even hope of healing in this life, but at least life in uh, future um, healing in the life to come. But particularly he promises to be with you in the midst of it. And in my own experience, having various walks on the line, even at 31, I know it's only going to get worse from here. But I'd much rather suffer with Jesus than without Jesus. So I wonder where you sit with that today. Would you bow your heads to me? I'd just love to close in prayer, and then we can have some time of Q&A. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you love us to a profound degree that we can't quite fathom. That you weep over our pain and our suffering and not just ours, but everyone else's. Father, I'm sorry for moments where I thought you were cold or disinterested. I spoke about things of which I did not know, and now that I've seen you in Jesus, I repent in dust and ashes. I thank you for how you've not left yourself without testimony, but that in the midst of our suffering, you come to suffer with us and suffer for us, to rescue us, not just from our own evil, but from the effects of this cursed world, to offer a hope that one day everything will be resurrected and made new. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you will awaken us to the hope that's found for us, for others, that they can cry and run to a wounded healer, a suffering savior, and there they'd find hope. And I pray too that they would find the gift of your church, 
the body of Christ here on earth, that they don't have to bear their suffering or their burdens alone, but they can bring it to you and to their brothers and sisters, their family in God, and that they, they can find help to be able to walk with and make it through this life in a way that brings glory to you and help to others. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Firstly, thanks. Thanks for coming down. It's great. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Um, let's go to question number one. Does God choose people to endure suffering? That's a great question. Um, so, depends on how you understand of God's sovereignty, his conception of being in and outside of time, um, how he moves in the midst of this. I said before that I think there are some things that come to us by virtue of us making certain decisions, that there is a cause and effectness, and some of the suffering that I, in my life I've brought upon myself by making stupid decisions. Um, a guy called me, I was on a radio show recently, he called me and said, I want to know why I'm suffering. And I'm like, it's a great question, really meaningful, tell me a little bit more. And he said, well, my feet are broken, and I want to know why I'm suffering. I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry, your feet are broken. He's like, yeah, I, I, I jumped, well, I fell off a balcony, uh, and I was drunk at the time. I'm like, well, there's, there's a degree of cause and effectness here as to how I could answer the question that you've just asked me. But obviously, I moved much more deeper into the kind of broader stuff. So does God choose people to endure suffering? I think C.S. Lewis put it this way, where he said that God makes extraordinary people often through very ordinary experiences of suffering. Um, I do think there's a way in which, because of how God is outside of time, looks through the corridors of time, could intervene in certain ways. Uh, everything that comes to us is father-filtered in a way. Um, he's choosing not to intervene where he could. And he could have a whole host of reasons for doing that, some which affect us, some which affect other people. So there is a way in which God chooses the kind of suffering that comes to you. But I don't think God says, this person's a bit of a jerk. I'm going to put some extra you know, banana peels in their way so they trip up, get videoed, put on YouTube, and that's really going to sort them out a little bit. Um, I think God is profoundly gracious, kind, and patient in the way that he seeks to bring us to a knowledge of him and to humility and to our character formation. So there's a way in which I would say there's a way in which he chooses the kind of suffering that comes as well as how that happens. As to choosing people specifically, um, I don't think God says, I want this person to have cancer. I want that person to lose their spouse. I want that person to go through a divorce. I think a lot of what happens in the world is by virtue of our DNA, our experience, our decisions, other people's decisions. That's just part of the world that God made and sustains. And so that happens because of the constellation of these factors coming together. So in one sense, does God choose it and choose people because it doesn't mean yes? In another sense, I don't think he's intentionally saying, this is what I want you to go through uh, in any kind of capricious or mean way. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Okay. Let's go to the next one. Oh, okay. How can we comprehend a God that is so incredible, so beyond definition as to know the motion of every atom and thought in the universe? How can we avoid falling back to a subconscious superhero understanding of God? Two-parter. I don't think they're necessarily terrible, uh, uh, terribly that far apart. Um, so certainly the problem with the superhuman view of God is certainly that, so whenever you hear Richard Dawkins speak, I just go one God further. You don't believe in Zeus and Hathor and Hermes and uh, Apollo. Uh, I just go one God further into atheism, that kind of idea. Um, it's the view that the God that we believe in is still part of the created stuff. Every other ancient God... Uh, they're still part of the matter and energy of the universe. They're part of the constituent parts of the universe. It's the monotheistic concept for Jews, Christians, and Muslims that sees a creator distinct from his creation. And the way that you can come to understand that or hold on to that is just by looking at the world that God has made. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8, when I look at what you, the world that you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him? And so getting a picture of the bigness of God can maybe come through our study of his attributes of the scriptures, of the nature of God that's revealed there, or a study of nature and just realizing the bigness of a God who can conceive and create what in all descriptive purposes for us is a universe that is expanding at such an accelerating rate that it is, practically speaking, infinite. Um, I get this big sense of God just by looking at the stars at night or a sunrise or a sunset over the wharf there last night. It just helps me realize the God that I worship, he's not just a bigger version of me, he's so other. And that's a story that's both revealed in nature and in scripture. Um, but as for the superhuman, um, 
God revealed to us in Jesus Christ is the best image of humanity at the same time. It's one of the things that our culture, they may hate the church or hate religion or institutions, but they still love Jesus because when they look at him, that's a human that they want to be like. He is certainly the image of the invisible God or of God revealed to us in the God man, but he's also an image of what humanity was meant to be in imaging God as well. And so I think there's a way in which he's kind of both, if that makes sense. Whoops. Yeah, good. If God is all sovereign, does he cause suffering or merely allow Satan to cause suffering? Great question. I was hoping this one wouldn't come up. Um, uh, mainly because it is a really good question and because it touches on what is maybe the other big enduring conversation within Christianity on this, is what do we mean when we say things like God is sovereign, that he elects, that he predestines, that he controls, that he works through? Um, and there's various ways of understanding this nature of God. Is God like the guy who's programming everything so that he directs every piece on the board like a chess master but playing both sides? Is that the image of God that we have? Or is it much more that he's risking, he's only playing one side of the chess game against chance, people, other free agents, and playing it out that way? Or is the picture of the sovereignty of God we have more like the way in which a king would rule over a kingdom? Or a ship captain would make sure that a ship gets to a particular destination. Everyone has their particular role of delegated responsibility. And God is sovereign over all of these delegated, delegated agents. Uh, and so in that sense, he controls and moves and has the ultimate voice and certainly has power to change what they do if he wants to. But does he still give people meaningful roles in how all of that plays out? And I tend to fit more into that kind of a picture of the way in which God's sovereignty in human and other free agents vis-a-vis -vis angels uh, kind of fit into the picture in that God is ultimately sovereign. He can rule over everything. He has the right of say, if he wanted to, he could cease to exist me right now. But yet because of what he wants us to be as be, um, uh, creatures, creatures who bear his image, he gives us subordinate freedoms, the subordinate responsibility. He gives us delegated authority uh, to be able to control elements within our domain because that's actually the kind of creatures that he wants that will rule and reign with Christ. So... Um, Again, I think God is all sovereign, but what do we mean when we say sovereignty? I come more down the picture where I think that he gives agents freedom within his sovereignty, knowing how things will ultimately play out and still yet allowing them their ultimate freedom. So, so yes, Satan causes suffering, uh, as do people, uh, and God is ultimately sovereign over all of that, and one day the world will look the way that he wants it to because he will have shaped those who cooperate and respond to his free gift and his offer for repentance to be as they were intended to be, bearing his image. I don't know if that helps. Um, that's not, uh, a, this is various perspectives in the Christian faith. That happens to be the one that I hold. Um, you'll find others out there. So. Uh, could sin exist in the new creation as a result of free will and would this affect? This is a great question. Um, the reason these are great questions is because you're listening to what I'm saying and then asking the next logical step. So I get encouraged when people are listening. <laughs> uh, so the way I think about this is many people are worried that the idea of the last picture in the two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22 will just be a reiteration of the first two chapters, right? We're placed in this new paradise. What's different about that to the conditions of Eden and what's going to stop the story from just happening again? Uh, I don't know if you saw this bad Nicolas Cage movie from a while back and it was called Knowing. And it's got this bizarre thing where uh, some of these kids are like stolen off planet Earth, which is about to be blown up by the sun and by alien creatures who then transport them to this different planet where the ending scene is all of these kids walking towards this giant tree on this new planet. And it's meant to have like quasi-biblical themes of end times, stuff like that. It's like, are they just going to eat from the tree again and the problem is going to happen? So for a, here's, here's some of the reasons why I don't think that's the case. Um, there's a number of differences between the end of the story and the beginning of the story. The first is, I think Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden are morally innocent but not morally mature. There's a real difference between these two things in terms of how finite creatures form in terms of character. Um, so when I got married to Erin, imagine if uh, we just said I do, she looked gorgeous and elegant and just amazing, uh, and then 10 minutes later I came up to you and said, I am innocent of adultery. Would you give me a prize or think that that's a particularly morally praiseworthy kind of achievement 10 minutes after marrying the most beautiful woman in the room? Um, you'd be like, okay, good for you. But if I came up to you after 50 years of being married and I said to you, in what I've looked at, in what I've entertained in my mind, in what I've touched with my hands, I am innocent of adultery. 
you would be like. You are some kind of superhuman beast, not even to look at someone with an illegitimate thought. That's, that's amazing. The first one I described as moral innocence. The second one I described as moral maturity. And the difference is, by virtue of how we form, develop desires, develop patterns of behavior, is the second would require me to have made the decision to say no, to divert my eyes, to make a covenant with my heart, to be careful with my affections, to cultivate a love for my wife, in a billion decisions that I make every single day in such a way that it forms like rivers through rock over time, this kind of soulishness of who I am. Even the Bible describes Jesus as being made perfect in obedience, right? He was born morally innocent, but as a human being, he becomes morally mature through a lifetime of obedience towards, towards God. And I think this is the picture of what actually happens with human beings. We're not just forgiven of our sin and returned to some innocent state, but we're actually recreated as a new creation, made to become like Jesus with a new nature, new desires. They get shaped and shaped by degree of glory every day. So one day when he appears, we will be made to be like him, for we shall see him as he, as he is. We're made to be like Jesus, a forging of our character. So I think this is one of the things that's the difference. Another one would be, um, in terms of the free will question, there could be a question of the limiting of our free will, but I think what makes our love significant in the second story is that we've actually made the decision in the first. So it's like the idea, again, of getting married. Uh, at the beginning, I'm free to choose any woman I want. Well, well she has to obviously respond back. Uh, but there's a certain degree of freedom while I'm single. But once I have made that decision to marry myself to her, then that freedom, that decision has ultimately been made. And then the consequences of what it means to be married to her, to live that out, is something that kind of continues on into eternity. So it could be that the degree or nature that we have, the limits of our freedom could be shifted post that, but the significant thing is that we've made that decision to express love with the marriage of Christ and his bride in the church, his elements that's there. Um, some of the other things that are different, in the Garden of Eden, God lived in heaven and humans dwelled on earth. It was God's space and human space. And even though God would come and dwell in the cool of the day, it wasn't in the presence of God that they sinned. It was when God wasn't there, when there were questions about what God is like. And in the biblical story, in the end, it's heaven coming down to make its home with us. It's a radical difference where now it describes not even a need for a sun or a temple because God will be its light and the guiding presence uh, will be there with us for all eternity for us to experience his goodness and his joy. And I'd also say another major difference is for Adam and Eve, morally innocent, they were also not formed in terms of their, their knowledge. They had no reason to distrust the character of God. But yet that temptation, did God really say, could he just be holding back from you something good because he just wants to keep it for himself? Wouldn't you like to reach out and take it so that you too can be like God? Human beings have experienced the story of what that means. You've got the arc now of the fall, of the pain, the tremendously terrible effects that that's brought on. You've seen the love and the goodness of God who loves us so much that he's willing to step out of heaven and to stumble down to a cross. If that's the kind of God can we trust him? Absolutely. So the question of the depth of our knowledge of God, the revelation of his love, of his humility, has been done through the story now so that human beings aren't able to be tempted with that same question. We know what the effects of going against God are in a way that we wouldn't have been as aware in that same way. So I think there's a whole host of differences that can go some way in answering that question. So that's the uh, last one. Now, but if you have more questions, feel free to accost Dan before you go and hit him up with that's all those great. questions. How do we make our church a safe place for those who are suffering? This is a really good question too. Um, uh, by not hiding it, um, by not pretending it doesn't exist, by not making every worship song, oh, happy day, happy day, happy day, and clapping and pretending that we all are doing great on the inside when everyone here is wrestling with something significant and hurting. Um, by being vulnerable enough to open up yourself to the people around you on the stuff that is hurting you and the burdens that you're bearing so that they, like Galatians said, can respond and bear your burdens and offer up their own so that we can walk together in this. Um, by finding the right people with a degree of maturity perhaps to, to do that with, uh, by existing in close-knit community in your DGs, your discipleship groups, so that you're not unaware of what the people near you are going through, but that you do all of life together, part of the pattern of the book of Acts, and daily meeting in homes and breaking breads, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to the fellowship, devoting themselves to the fellowship. They knew what was going on in each other's worlds. 
Um, and I think as well, there's a whole lot of practices around here that uh, some people just don't have maybe um, as much empathy or um, social now, and that's just part of how we're made and experience a broken world. So just finding the people that you think uh, you can entrust those things to. There's a bunch of little ones, but I'm sure Don would have way better ideas uh, as your pastor and kind of community stuff through here, so uh, I'll leave that with you. It's been a privilege just being able to be here. Uh, I'll stick around for ages, so if you want to come and chat and pray or share a story, ask a question, anything like that, we'd love to. Bless you. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.